down in the grip of oppression I fought for my liberty I paid with the blood of my people Freedom has never been free Now my door's always open To dreamers and friends But when I'm attacked I protect and defend Because my name is America Welcome everyone, hope you had an absolutely wonderful week. So many things have been happening in our country with the elections and everything. It is truly amazing and I thought very hopeful to watch uh, election results. Uh, People I believe are finally getting the idea of what is going on and what these people are, who they are, and the fact that they really mean business. Folks, this crowd that is anti-American, they don't say it just to hear their voices. They really mean it. And until we recognize that fact, it's hard to fight with them because you look at them like they're like you. Oh, they're just misguided. No, they're not. They really, truly believe the things that they're taught. And that's the biggest part of the problem because their teaching goes so deep. And we put on blinders and allow them to continue. Uh, Things like the vaccine, where people are more people are dying who have had the vaccine, more people who are get, are getting sick who have had the vaccine than the people who have not. And yet we are allowing the government to continue to mandate vaccines. What's wrong with us? This is a, not a good thing. Carbon dioxide, that's another one. We're going to allow them to kill our cattle so that the cattle won't breathe or fart. Methane gas that does absolutely nothing like carbon dioxide. You need to understand what a world without carbon dioxide would be. They are lying. Everything that they do is a lie. But you don't have to hear that from me today only because we have Chris right here and he has a wonderful speaker who is going to be telling us what is really happening from real life stories. That's the most important thing. You can listen to me all the time. I can give you all the history that you could ever want to know. But somebody who's been there and done that telling you exactly what's going on you're in for a treat. This is Karen Schoen. You're listening to the Prism of America's Education brought to you on the America Out Loud talk radio network with my wonderful sponsor, the Florida Citizens Alliance. Chris, welcome to the show. Eric, welcome to the show. And I am going to put this in your good hands, Chris, because we always learn so much when you're here. So I want to take advantage of you being here. Karen, thanks for having us back. Uh, I founded the Anti-Communism Action Team in 2013. We're in our ninth year. We have a free mailing list. We have a a weekly roundup of anti-communism news. That's available through mail at spiderinthefly.com with hyphens between the words, spider hyphen, etc. We also have a speakers bureau, survivors of communism and subject matter experts who are available by video conferencing anywhere in the country. 
Uh, we will speak to your group, church group, classroom, whatever it may be. And there are no speaker fees and the newsletter is free and the, your contact information, if you sign up for our newsletter, your contact information is never sold or shared. This is completely a grassroots effort by people uh, who are concerned about the direction of the country. It's a labor of love and we're not trying to make any money at this. So tonight we have a special guest. His name is Eric Seligman. I met Eric a couple of years ago. He runs a fabulous website called Stories of Communism. And I asked him one time on a call, why did you take this approach? Why stories of communism? And he said that different people learn in different ways. And a lot of people are reached through human interest stories, profiles of actual people living through actual events. So we're going to hear from Eric tonight. He's interviewed a number of uh, survivors of communism, book authors, quirky personalities, He's, it's, it runs the gamut on stories of communism. And uh, we're gonna hear from him tonight some of his favorite highlights from his years of doing the Stories of Communism podcast. So a little bit about Eric before we turn things over to him. Eric Seligman is a, if I can find my notes here. Yes, Eric Seligman is co-host of the Stories of Communism podcast. He served from 2013 to 2017 on the board of Oregon's fourth largest school district. Uh, which was about 20,000 students. He was continually frustrated with the entrenched socialist philosophy being promoted in those schools. So after leaving the board, he started Stories of Communism with his blogging partner, Manuel Castaneda, a successful local businessman and immigrant. And here they share the real stories of those who had suffered under socialism. Eric earns his living as an engineer, having recently retired from Intel after nearly three de decades there and is now a senior product engineering architect at Cadence De Design Systems. He lives in Wichita, Kansas with his wife, daughter, and his cats. So Eric, you've been at the Stories of Communism for a while. You've collected some doozies. So uh, please tell us, uh, what are some of your favorite stories? Yeah, yeah. You know, I think, you know, the thing about these stories is that they sort of run the gamut from all the different types of stories you can think of. There's, you know, adventure, there's romance, um, there's tragedy, of course, and there's comedy. And, you know, I, I think that the uh, sort of Hollywood has really done our nation a disservice. If you look over the past century, I mean, if you count the number of, you know, movies or TV shows that have addressed life under communism, I think you'd have, you know, a really hard time using up your fingers. And um, well, if you look at certain other events of the 20th century, like World War II, which lasted what, you know, maybe a fifth to a 10th of the time that communism has been around. Um, there's been so much, right? That's been so overdone over and over. And really it's because of the fact that, you know, when you envision, you know, what's evil, you have, you know, 10,000 World War II stories and movies in your head, right? You think, oh, well, you know, we know what's evil. It's defined by World War II, but nobody can even recall, you know, a single negative thing about communism for the most part. Right. And so that's why when I was on the school board, you know, I saw in their teaching materials, you know, statements like, you know, well, capitalism is a white person's philosophy and, you know, people of color who care about each other more tend to drift towards socialism, which is the more natural system of government. But you see things like that and you realize it's because people just have always heard negative things about capitalism, never heard a single negative thing about uh, life under communism. So, you know, so just, um, there's so many stories to tell. I think, you know, one of the most uh, impactful ones, you know, that I uh, heard and that I told in the podcast is um, the memoir of uh, Thomas Segovia. 
Um, and he was an American uh, who lived in the uh, 1930s. And uh, he grew up in, you know, a poor working class family. And back then there was a lot of sort of, you know, communist movements in the U.S., right? And so, of course, uh, he and his family, you know, pretty much, you know, loved those communist movements. They hoped they would make everything fairer, make everyone richer and so on. And they engaged in some uh, protests that got out of hand. Right? And to avoid going to jail, his father fled the country for the Soviet Union. Right? And at that time, the New York Times, the paper of record, had been publishing lots of stories about how great life was under communism in the Soviet Union. So when uh, Thomas Segovia's father went over there, of course, um, Segovia decided to follow him uh, and enjoy this wonderful life under communism and the, the socialist paradise that had been you know, promised and promoted by the New York Times. And when he got over there, of course, um, he was not alone. There were thousands of Americans who were convinced by these kinds of uh, leftist media stories to go and enjoy the great life under Stalin and under communism. Uh, he found that things weren't quite like uh, he expected. I mean, he thought he'd known poverty in the U.S., but he said when he got to uh, the Soviet Union, he then understood what real poverty was. So there was like a washerwoman in his apartment building who mopped the floors every day. You know, she obviously had a job, you know, wasn't the most glamorous one. But yet every day she begged him for a cup of tea because she couldn't afford a cup of tea per day on her salary. Yeah. And, um, you know, and this was someone who in the U.S. had been protesting his lack of rights. And, you know, but of course, you know, he wouldn't have thought that, you know, he'd be unable to buy a cup of tea on a typical day. And he also noticed that, you know, the Americans who had immigrated to the Soviet Union initially were treated like Soviet elites. They had special apartments. They were allowed to shop in the special stores you've probably heard of where you can buy foreign goods and things like that. And so he saw that, you know, there were classes in the Soviet Union, just like in the U.S. The only difference was because Stalin wanted to encourage, you know, propaganda from U.S. immigrants that the U.S. immigrants who came over became part of the privileged group in the Soviet Union, which was great for his first few years there, you know, in terms of, you know, he saw all this dire poverty around him because he was part of this elite group, you know, it was, it was great. He was able to, you know, get what he needed. Uh, the Soviet girls, of course, threw themselves at him and, <laughs> you know, any young man would like. And uh, things seemed very pleasant, uh, you know, relatively speaking for, you know, the Americans, though he was still worried about, you know, what he saw around him. Well, as you probably know, after a few years, Stalin decided he didn't like Americans so much anymore. You know, so he didn't care that much about their relations with the U.S., you know, especially, of course, when he signed the treaty with uh, Hitler and all that. So one day the Americans just lost all their privileges. We're told, hey, you know what? You're just ordinary Soviets now. You know, get out of your special apartments. No more going to the special stores. Just, you know, do your work and do what you're told. Now, of course, Segovia already had, you know, misgivings about general life in the Soviet Union. And uh, at that point, he really realized there was really nothing more to gain for him from being there. He, he realized he would live a much better life as one of the poor Depression era people in the U.S. than he would as an ordinary Soviet citizen. So he did what any, you know, American conscious of his rights would do. He walked right down to the American embassy, marched in there and asked for his paper so he could go home. Now, of course, that was a little naive of him. As soon as he stepped out of the embassy, he was arrested 
and thrown into a prison for interrogation. And this was also something that was a, a big irony to him because you know, when he was arrested in the US, of course, the police were carting him off after a protest. He was yelling out, look how the police are violating my rights. You know, this is so horrible. America doesn't believe in human rights. But of course, he was taken to a jail, you know, processed, you know, being able to leave the same day once the father paid the bail and so on. It was no big deal. Now, in the Soviet Union, when you were arrested for interrogation, there was no paying bail. There was no, you know, protesting loudly. You, know, you were stuffed into a cell. You were interrogated harshly. You were barely fed. Um, and uh, you were eventually forced to confess and sent off to a, a labor camp. And so that's what happened to Segovia. Um, like many Americans who had immigrated to the Soviet Union, he ended up in one of the prison camps of the Gulag doing forced slave labor every day. And uh, he was sentenced to 12 years. Now, now, when he got out there, he discovered, you know, the true horrors of uh, what, you know, prison life is like over there. Of course, you know, Stalin worked people nearly to death. They bar were barely fed. And... Um, the camps themselves were run by petty criminals. Ironically, because Segovia had tried to emigrate, he was labeled a political prisoner. And so he was treated as sort of, you know, a second class prisoner below the uh, criminals. And they were able to essentially take things from him. You know, they took his pillow, his bedding. And on top of that, the commandant of the prison told him that because he'd lost his pillow and bedding, when he was eventually released, he'd have to reimburse the Soviet state for the cost of those things, you know, as if that little bit mattered when he was, you know, being worked to death on a daily basis. You know, on days when he put in his 12-hour shift and didn't manage to uh, uh, complete the amount of work that was expected, he was sent right back out into the field for another 12-hour shift without being allowed to go to sleep. Now, um, obviously, th this kind of life is uh, leads to a lot of people just being worked to death, starving, or even giving up hope. But, uh, you know, Segovia was a, you know, a smart person, and he looked around, and he saw that these uh, thieves who ran the camp, you know, the petty criminals who weren't labeled politicals, they managed to get, you know, a lot of food compared to other prisoners, and uh, they managed to survive. They had special deals where they could control the work assignments they got. And so he decided one day, his only hope was to throw himself on the mercy of these thieves. So one day he walked to the head of one of the prison gangs and he said, oh, please, you're so wise. Please tell me how to survive here. I'll do anything for you. And uh, now, of course, that was kind of a desperate thing to do. And, you know, most Soviets who did that would just get kicked in the face and sent away. But the thief who he was speaking to recognized his American accent and said, hey, you're from America, aren't you? And Segovia said, yeah, I am. The thief said, hey, have you ever heard of Al Capone? And luckily, Segovia had, of course, read about Al Capone in the newspapers and was able to tell some stories about Al Capone that the uh, thieves hadn't heard before. And of course, these prison gangsters, they loved stories of American gangsters. And uh, Segovia was a good storyteller. He also told them about John Dillinger, who they hadn't heard about before, and was able to sort of make himself a sort of entertainer for the thieves of the camp. And because of that, he was able to put himself under their protection and that's basically how he survived. You know, and the other thing that they discovered once he was under the protection of the thieves is he had one other talent, which was invaluable in these kind of locations. He could draw, and in particular, he could draw realistic looking pornography, which, you know, for the thieves in the camp, you know, they had no easy way to acquire such things. You know, there were no mass publication magazines in the Soviet Union that could 
supply that need. And even if there were, thieves couldn't get them. So, you know, because of that, you know, the, his talents for storytelling and art of sorts, um, he was able to basically survive. But even with these things and with the protection of the thieves, he was just barely able to survive, right? They gave him an amount of food that was maybe high by the scale of prisoners, but low by the scale of everyone else, um, to the point where one day, you know, the doctor told him, you know, well, Segovia, I'm, I'm worried about you. I can see your bones. And because he was at that point, he was basically, you know, he'd lost all the fat on his flesh. He was, you've probably seen those like pictures of German concentration camp survivors. People were like that all over the Soviet gulag system as well, um, where they'd been, you know, on barely enough food to, to keep moving. And that was it. Um, and on top of that, uh, Segovia was sentenced to 12 years, but he actually spent 16 years in the camps because of the fact that, you know, the Soviet bureaucracy messed up a lot and just simply didn't release him on time. And of course, those kind of prisoners have no rights to a lawyer, no rights to any kind of help. So there was nothing he could do when the camp officials just randomly kept him in for another four years. Um, but miraculously, you know, again, because of his various skills and his contacts with the thieves, he managed to survive all this time. He got out. And um, it was only many years later after the post-Stalin thaw that he was actually allowed to leave the Soviet Union altogether. You know, because of course, when he got out, he couldn't just go right to the embassy and ask to leave because that's what got him arrested in the first place. But he eventually made it back to the US, uh, managed to get himself back to normal health and uh, told his story. And uh, he wrote a memoir and survived till 1997. Um, but I think, you know, that, that's really an important story to tell, you know, for a few reasons. You know, one, of course, is, you know, it reveals just the total horror of, of life under the Soviet system, you know, and for the millions who are sent to these prison camps for things that, you know, we wouldn't consider even remotely close to a criminal offense, right? Just asking permission to leave. But the other thing is, this is a case where American propaganda, right? American leftists who didn't care what happened as a result of their actions, spent all this time, you know, hyping up how great the Soviet Union was you know, and there were literally thousands of Americans who ended up emigrating to the Soviet Union based on things that these prize-winning New York Times reporters had written. And I don't think, you know, the New York Times ever apologized to them. I mean, and it's funny, you know, I went to the, uh, you know, Oklahoma City Memorial um, last week. And, you know, of course, that was a horrible terrorist attack in the U.S. where, you know, 160 or so people died. You know, and, and it's right that we're still talking about it many decades later and still remember it. Why is it that, you know, years after the New York Times effectively sentenced, you know, thousands of Americans to, to perish and be tortured in Stalin's slave labor camps, why has there never been a memorial to them, right? And why haven't people ever, you know, taken those American leftists to tasks for what they did uh, to these people? Eric, that's a whale of a story. Um... I have a couple of questions, but let's see if Karen has some reaction first. Uh, that is quite a story, and it is very important that people see a contrast. You're absolutely right, because the I, I was talking to a friend of mine who's Haitian, and we were talking about the Haitians coming here, and he was saying that the corruption in Haiti is so bad that the people are living in shanty shacks again, Never changed from when the uh, earthquake struck and the Clintons stole money that was supposed to go to Haiti. 
But what he was saying was, I said, so if they're coming here, then why, what is, what's the draw? What's the attraction? Um, and he said, Karen, being poor in America is being rich in Haiti. And that's what I think is happening. So these people come here and can we fault them for coming under the situation that's coming now? It is a disgusting travesty and Biden administration should be on trial for treason. But that's another story. But we can't be mad at the people for wanting to change their life either. And what we should have been doing is working with them in their own government, because not only are we destroying America, but we're destroying their countries as well. To me, what you just described that happened in the 30s was no different than leaving our prisoner, leaving our people in Afghanistan. How is that any different? We'd left them at the, you know, at the whatever the Taliban wants to do uh, is fine. And now the Taliban is teaming up with Al Qaeda. Isn't that wonderful? And they're producing a bomb. Isn't that even better? And we have all these wonderful things to look forward to. But you're right, Eric. It really brings home, it really brings home the importance of understanding period pieces, what went on at that time. And that's why learning history is, to me, is so important. Because when I hear a story like that, I'm saying, oh, well, now it makes sense for what they're doing today, because all they're doing is what they did then. They haven't changed anything. So if we know what their plan is, we should be smart enough to be able to say, no, we're not going to buy into that. It's great that you're doing what you're doing. Thank you. We are yeah. going to have to stop for a few minutes for a break, and we'll be coming right back. So could you tell everyone where they could find you? Yes. The website is spiderandthefly.com with hyphens between the words. And the email address is mail at spiderandthefly.com, again, with hyphens between the words. Okay, folks, we will be right back, and hopefully we can talk Eric into telling another story, and will get us even closer into understanding where these illegal immigrants are coming from, why they want to come to America so badly, but more important, contrast the life and understand what communism is really all about. It is certainly not another social network that we should be joining. Be right back, folks. This is Karen Schoen. You're listening to the Prism of America's Education, brought to you on the America Out Loud Talk Radio Network with my wonderful sponsor, the Florida Citizens Alliance. Folks, uh, the U.S. News and World Report has just come out with their ratings of uh, schools and what is going on in America. You will be astounded. Please go there. Um, this Florida Citizens Alliance has some wonderful legislation. If your school board is giving you some problems, uh, that is goflca.com. Please visit the website. Feel free to take anything that you want. Start a coalition in your state and pay attention to what your kids are learning. You cannot stop critical race theory social emotional learning, etc. when you have authors in textbooks who just believe that. Look and see who the authors are. What have they published? What do they believe? 
and then make your decisions as to who you want to work with your children. We will be right back. Do not go away. All right. You've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the pulpidone iodine-based nasal spray, Cofix RX. They talk about it because it's a product that actually works in combating colds, flus, and coronaviruses. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. It's simple. By attacking viruses where they incubate, you make it easier for your body to heal. Check out the Cofix RX banner ad on AmericaOutloud.com and save 20% by using promo code OUTLOUD. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day, yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. Surely if you can't find it here, you can't find it anywhere. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought. You can listen in on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races. You toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM Sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Oral hygiene hasn't changed in 50 years. Brush, floss, repeat. We're told to use fluoride, which doesn't really address the acid-creating bacteria. That is where the dentist-recommended Spry Dental Defense System shines. Spry products contain xylitol, a natural sugar, which helps get rid of those nasty, smelly, acid-creating bacteria in our mouth. The best way to care for your teeth and gums is by using Spry. The Spry Dental Defense System has a wide variety of products. Toothpaste, mouthwash, mints, and chewing gums that are designed to work together to keep your teeth clean and mouth healthy and smelling sweet all day long. To get your oral care back on track in an easy, effective, and very tasty way, switch to Spry today. Ask your dentist about Xylitol and the Spry products. Spry can be found online and at all fine natural product retailers. Well, during the break, I began to 
think some of the things that happened this past week that make me realize that we're getting closer to what Eric described in the last segment with this story than not. And what I'm talking about is the raiding of the FBI on Mar-a-Lago. That is unheard of. That is never done. And yet it is being done. And that is a reminder of what a third world country does. You go after your political rivals and you intimidate them and try to make sure that they put them in jail. They are doing everything humanly possible to try to put Trump in jail so that he won't be able to run for office should he choose to do so in 2024. You're listening to Karen Schoen. This is the prism of America's education brought to you on the America Out Loud talk radio network with my wonderful sponsor, the Florida Citizens Alliance, and my wonderful guests, Chris Wright and Eric Seligman. Um, Chris, let's get back quickly. Uh, Time, I don't want to waste anybody's time because I know you have so many things to tell us. And I think what we are treading into right now is something that we have never experienced before. This generation has never experienced before. Well, it's certainly starting to look like uh, political persecution. But rather than listen to me rant on that subject, I'd like to get back to Eric because the first story was so great. And I want to hear another story from Eric. So maybe he's got one that uh, that fits current events. Maybe not. They're all- uh, well, you know, I mean, I think I, I could I could look for one that fits current events. But, you know, one one thing, one principle I like to go by in the, the podcast is that, you know, of course, we have a lot of heavy stories like Segovia and like uh, Jennifer Zhang. But, um, you know, I think we also need to occasionally look at the uh, humorous stories or the satire, because I think, you know, one of the things about uh, communicating these things by telling stories is that you need sort of all sorts of stories, right? You can't just watch really serious dramas and tragedies all the time, right? You have to lighten things up with humor. But there are plenty of humorous stories that can be told that still sort of help communicate the dangers of the communist and socialist systems. So, um, you know, one of my favorites is... um, you know, from a short story by a Polish science fiction author named Stanislaw Lem. I don't know if you might have heard of him if you're a science fiction fan, um, but uh, he wrote a lot of uh, really funny uh, satires um, with, you know, not so subtle points about life under communism, right? So one, one of my favorites is one called The Eleventh Voyage. And what it's talking about is it's, um, you know, basically Lem wrote a series of sort of satirical voyages of this uh, space pilot named Tiki who um, went to all sorts of uh, weird places in the world and discovered weird societies. So, um, so one day he was uh, told by the government that there's this planet that's run entirely by robots. There's not a single human there and they've threatened to invade us. So we really need a spy to go over there and see what's happening uh, and be careful because all the spies who've sent there before have never returned. So they must be really good at uh, sniffing those out. But we have a great idea. We have this robot suit for you. So put on this robot suit and everybody will think you're a robot when you're wearing it. Just make sure to remember to act like a robot. Don't let them see you, you know, eating or drinking or, you know, sleeping or anything like that. And, you know, you should be able to go to their planet, um, introduce yourself as one of them and, um, you know, live in that society and tell us what's going on. So Tiki said, okay, yeah, that's a great idea. I'll do that. So he, you know, put on this robot suit and flew to this planet of robots and uh, landed there and started, you know, trying to interact with the local population. And at first, you know, he was able to fit in. He learned their 
peculiar styles of speaking and walking and tried to imitate them. Um, but one day he slipped up. You know, he uh, sort of took a break to um, eat some food. And uh, one of the uh, robots saw him doing that. And the robot went up to him and said, aha, you're really a human, not a robot. I've caught you. And Tiki said, oh, oh no, what, what do we do now? And the robot said, well, I could take you off to be executed, but instead I'm gonna give you a chance. If you agree to continue walking around in your robot disguise or report to me regularly on any humans you might find on the planet, I'll let you stay alive, but you have to make sure you keep reporting and uh, you have to make sure that you tell me everything. And Tiki said, okay, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll do that. And so as he went around, he uh, discovered another robot who was really a human. And he went up to that robot and examined him closely. And uh, you know, he asked him, you know, so what are you doing here? And, and, and the uh, robot was of course fearful and, uh, you know, but uh, Tiki figured out you know, that it was another human spy sent like him. And so eventually as he walked around and uh, examined the society, he realized that every time he tried to uh, follow a robot and really examine its actions closely, the robot turned out to really be human. And finally in the conclusion, he discovers that there's not a single robot left on the planet. Everybody there are humans in robot disguises, too terrified to let anybody else know that they're not a robot. And so you can kind of see the, the point yeah. of that story, right? In that, you know, in communist countries, right, you go around and you have to loudly proclaim the glories of communism and show everybody your faith in it. But how many people really believe in it, right? Chances are you're like those robots on Lem's planet and nobody really believes the stories, but yet everybody is too terrified to say anything different. Karen? Uh, I, that's absolutely right. And that is exactly what communists do. They create the dangerous situation, get the people terrified. The people then turn around and say, we need more government to help us get out of this terrible situation that you put us in. And the government says, sure, just give up some rights and we'll be happy to come in and take over. And my fear from what's going on now and knowing the way these people work and seeing how evil they truly are is that uh, they are going to force a famine on the world. Uh, they love famines. They've done it so many times. And then it's easy to say, uh, you want food? Give me your gun. You want food? Give me your house. Give me your car. Give me your whatever. Give me your jewelry. And all of a sudden, you have nothing. And you're happy because you're getting food. So is that where all of this is going? I don't know, Chris. Well, I had, I had a different reaction. I've been listening to my speakers now for <clears throat> close to 10 years. So uh, the story that Eric told us connects with some of the things they were telling me over the years. And just imagine living a, a life, uh, uh, your life terrified all the time. That's not the ordinary American experience. So one of my speakers is from Bulgaria, and she said, contrary to um, what most people have the impression of communism, life in communist Bulgaria was actually pretty comfortable. People went on vacations, there was enough food, education was good. But what, she, what prompted her to flee the country was living under this terror and everything was a lie. And she couldn't stand living the lie any longer. She had to get out. She had too strong a sense of self uh, to live a lie and be terrified all the time. So uh, another 
uh, speaker. Uh, her name was Clara Sever. She was from Czechoslovakia. She is recently deceased. And she was telling us about uh, life in communist Czechoslovakia under the communist government. And you never knew who was going to inform on you. So like in Eric's story, uh, where the robot says to the human, um, I'll take care of you if you re if you inform, if you report back to me on other humans you find, if you inform on your neighbors. Um, that's what was going on in Czechoslovakia. And you didn't know whether your landlady would inform on you. You didn't know if your own children were going to inform on you. And she told this story about how people would meet on the street. And <clears throat> what they would do is the first thing they would do when they met on a street corner is that they would coordinate their story, they would tell the authorities if they were asked about their conversation afterwards. So all we're talking about is the football game, right? And then they would have their little conversation. But imagine living your life where every conversation you had, you had to start it out by agreeing with your friend what you would tell the authorities later if you were questioned about the conversation. I cannot imagine living under that kind of system. I think we're headed there. Because all of this surveillance and all of the uh, AI, these people don't care about human life. They don't care what you think or feel. You're just uh, in the way for them and you can produce for them. Otherwise, you're a useless eater and here's your uh, computer game and uh, some food. Give me your gun. They don't fool around. They're not playing. I'm hoping and I really think that we're seeing signs of the American people saying we're not going to take it. And hopefully we, we still have that time to do that. But after the FBI going and raiding Mar-a-Lago, you know, <laughs> this, is, this is our future. This cannot be our future. This cannot stand. Well, Karen, we've come to a fork in the road. Um, usually you have me speak a bit about current events, but Eric's stories are so wonderful. I'm happy to let him continue. Uh, what would you like to do? Um, Eric, it's up to you. If you got another story, we would love to hear it because, folks, this is why it is so important that I said before to learn history. And this is why they refuse and will take all of the literature and the period pieces out of school because they don't want people to understand what life was like at that time. They don't want people to understand what communism was really all about at that time. So they glorify it. And then, as Michelle Obama said, we will change history. And that's what they've done. And that's why real life stories are so important, because these are things that really happened. Thank you, Eric. Yeah, yeah. So I think, you know, one other interesting story that I, I like bringing up is um, one that kind of surprised me because um, I worked at you know, Intel for many years and many of my coworkers were immigrants there, of course. And um, there was in particular, one guy named uh, Giussi Sudo was a Romanian immigrant. And I feel kind of bad because we worked in the same department for over 20 years, but I never really talked to him about non-work stuff. So um, I didn't really know anything about his background of growing up under communism, you know, in the 70s and 80s. But um, then last year, he actually published a memoir called I Tried 
about his life in communist Romania. And after that, I interviewed him for my podcast, of course, because his, his stories are really, um, you know, he, he's a person who, you know, lived through some, some really bad things, but um, really tries to take sort of a lighthearted look at it. Like, for example, he starts by talking about, you know, how when he was young, he loved to play soccer. And, you know, he dreamed of getting this round ball he'd seen in a nearby store because all he had was a kind of homemade soccer ball that wasn't really fully round and bounced in kind of odd ways. But he and his friends had to play with that one because it was all they had. And um, he talked about how, you know, every uh, weekend he had to um, wait online for an hour at, um, to get buckets of water to carry back to his house because, you know, there was obviously no way you could uh, drink the water that came out of their taps. It was just too disgusting there. Um, and uh, he, uh, you know, a few years later, he was in high school. And um, one day the government came in and said, good news, everyone, you can volunteer to work at our labor camp and help dig a canal for the, for the people. It's your service to the communist government. And by the way, it's not optional. So Sudo and his friends were essentially declared slave laborers for a summer. You know, they had no choice. They would have gone to jail if they refused. You know, sent away to a, a labor camp where they had to spend the summer helping to dig a canal. You know, and of course, you know, they had no control over where they lived, what they ate. You know, they were given a, a round gruel every day that contained pebbles. And um, they actually had a little game they played when they were eating. They took turns throwing pebbles at the window of the uh, cafeteria building hoping that maybe one day if one of them cracked the window badly enough, they'd be able to convince the uh, commandant that they should uh, be given food without rocks in it. But uh, they didn't really succeed in that. But um, one day, uh, Sudo had you know, something going wrong with one of his teeth. He started getting a really bad toothache. And you know, it, he eventually managed to convince the leaders of the camp to give him a day pass to go to a dentist to take care of his toothache. So he hiked down the road, you know, and uh, after a few hours, made his way to the dentist's office. And of course, all healthcare under communist Romania was free for the people, as you've heard in all the propaganda. So he knocked on the door and you know, the dentist came in and uh, he said, I really have a really bad tooth. Can you help me? And she said, OK, what do you have for me? Because, of course, it was expected that when you got your free health care, you would come along with a bribe for the doctor, which, of course, you know, was totally separate from the price of the health care, which was free. And uh, Sudo, being a student who just come from a labor camp, didn't have anything to give the doctor or the dentist. So she just said, uh, well, I'm not going to treat you then. And so he went and sat on her stoop for the whole day, watching patients come in and out, just looking pathetic because his tooth was in pain and he really you know, didn't want to leave without getting it treated somehow. So finally, at the end of the day, the dentist was about to leave. She opened the door, saw him out there and took pity on him and said, oh, all right, come in, I'll treat you. So he came in and she, you know, filled in his cavity. Um, and it turned out that uh, years later, when I pseudo lived in the U.S. and um, went to a competent dentist, um, there'd been a piece of a drill bit permanently embedded in his tooth from the uh, incompetent job the dentist did filling his cavity. But it was enough to, you know, reduce his pain for the moment. So he filled it in and went back to the labor camp. And uh, of course, you know, Sudo continued, you know, living his life with uh, many um, petty uh, indignities like that. But uh, I think, you know, probably my favorite chapter of his memoir is where he talks about when he um, was an adult and he'd gotten a computer engineering degree, but he also was able to qualify to work as a part-time ski instructor. 
You know, and of course, if you was, were talking to someone in the US, you'd be like, well, why would you, you know, take time away from computer engineering, which pays a lot of money, to work as a ski instructor? Well, that was his one chance to be in the, in the same place as foreigners. So he could like speak to Americans, help improve his English, and learn about what was going on in the outside world, right? Because ski instruction is one of the few things that communism actually has to hire you based on merit. Because, you know, if you're an incompetent ski instructor, teaching uh, you know, foreign visitors how to ski, it's gonna be discovered pretty quickly, right? That you don't know what you're doing. So because Sudo actually knew what he was doing, he got hired as a ski instructor despite not having you know, communist influence or anything like that. But one of the most important benefits of this job was that after, as the uh, visitors were leaving, um, they were able to give him the toothpaste tubes that they had in their hotel rooms. And you think, well, why would you want toothpaste tubes that were you know, used that someone had in their hotel rooms? Well, I mean, we all know that when you actually use your toothpaste tube, you probably throw it away before the absolute last atom of toothpaste is out of it, right? There's quite a bit of toothpaste left in it. And because Romanian toothpaste was so bad, it was actually worthwhile for him to collect these foreign, almost used up toothpaste tubes and squeeze out the toothpaste he could get and that way he was able to brush his teeth much, much better than he could with his uh, horrible Romanian toothpaste. And so, and, and I think that just shows the, the contrast between life you know, among the so-called poor here in the US. I mean, no matter how poor someone tells you they're in the US, I don't think you'd be able to find someone who like begs for used toothpaste tubes and squeezes out the last bit of toothpaste from them. But that was you know, a sort of everyday thing to uh, Suda with his plum, uh, ski instructor job in Romania. I have several reactions, but Karen? I think it's very ingenious and it is uh, always amazing about the human um, idea to get you to make yourself better. No matter what the communists do, no matter what any of these authoritarians do to put you down. The human spirit is always there because you always want to better yourself. You always want to get ahead. And um, unless you're beaten down with drugs and depression, which is what they are trying to do, it always pops up. And I think uh, this, was, this was a perfect example of what this man had to do to get himself to be better. Well, here are my reactions. The, the story about the forced labor not being optional, that, that occurs today in North Korea. It's a routine occurrence for the population to be pressed into uh, government service to go pick berries on the mountain mountainside and, and things like that. So uh, imagine if you were in the United States and we had a system where uh, Joe Biden would simply say, okay, you're going to install solar panels today and you, it's not optional. Uh, that would give you some idea of what these people, the conditions these people live under. Now, you mentioned that the dentist asked for a bribe. Well, that, that's not unique to Romania. Uh, that's just in about every socialist country, communist country that I've ever read about in their, their uh, healthcare system, which is not of the quality that the Americans would accept. It's all, they're all characterized by this taking of bribes. And in some of those systems, um, they don't have anesthesia unless you pay the bribe for the anesthesia. So imagine getting your surgery without anesthesia. Um, in Cuba, you have to bring your own uh, sheets and pillows to the to the hospital because they don't have any. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
and this brings up an aspect of communism that I don't think gets nearly enough attention. That is, it warps the character and destroys the moral fiber of of the people. So it's not just bribes, but uh, I remember one of my speakers uh, again from Czechoslovakia. He said they were in a situation where they had to steal things in order to get by. So. Uh, the saying in Czech, communist Czechoslovakia was, if you're not stealing from the state, you're robbing from your own family. Well, imagine a system that routinely produces people like that, an entire population that is totally morally warped, no moral compass, and all they do <laughs> is steal to survive. This is one of the most insidious aspects of communism, and uh, people don't really realize that that's what the system does to people. Chris, don't we have that with BLM? They're teaching, that's what they're teaching. It's okay to steal as long as it's under, uh, what is it, $900? As long as it's $1,000 less, it's okay. You can go in and steal. They're encouraging that. And this is just another aspect of what you just described. Uh, There, the the wrinkle there is it's okay because insurance will pay for it. So it's even okay to steal cars because insurance will pay. pay I think there's a bigger point there. And that is that, you know, because of all this sort of leftist propaganda and the fact they haven't heard these real stories of life under communism, you know, the the BLM people and, you know, the left wingers in San Francisco passed these ridiculous policies you're talking about. They really believe that the U.S. is a fundamentally evil country and life is so horrible here and it's made its people so miserable compared to other places, I don't know what they're comparing to, you know, but compared to other places that, you know, because U.S. is so horrible, we deserve to suffer. So, you know, it's not that, uh, you know, it's somehow morally right for people to steal, but because the U.S. is so horrible, and of course, anyone who owns a store is an evil capitalist who's part of the U.S. system, that to make up for that horrible behavior and punish it, you know, we should, the so-called righteous people should be allowed to steal from them as much as they want. And they're just bringing justice to the world. And and I really think that's the way they're looking at it because again, they they have nothing to compare to and all they've been taught is the U S and capitalism are fundamentally evil. Correct. There's a big dose of uh, they're going to even the score by looting, et cetera, et cetera. It's our turn. So there is, there is that going on. There's one other aspect of Eric's story I wanted to comment on. And that is the controlled information environment that people live in in a communist system. So this guy went to be a ski instructor every once in a while so he could talk to other people and find out what was going on in the world. And I wanted to bring in a current event on this one because keep your eye on a lawsuit brought by the state attorneys general of of Missouri and Louisiana. It's been joined by a gateway pundit. It's been joined by scientists and doctors from uh, who signed the Great Barrington Declaration criticizing COVID lockdown policies. And what it is, it it, uh, alleges collusion between the likes of Google and Facebook, uh, social media giants, but which particular ones I really don't remember, between them and government officials in the Biden administration. So the Biden administration officials uh, go to the social media companies and say things like, well, we don't like this comment people are making about COVID, so we want you to squelch that kind of comment. Well, this is all now in a courtroom, and generally these companies are, are private companies not subject to the First Amendment, but when there's a, there's a legal doctrine called the state actor theory, and if you can show enough that these, these state, uh, these 
uh, nominally private companies were um, in cahoots with, with government officials to censor free expression, then uh, you can pin liability on these companies. So it's going to be a very interesting lawsuit. Keep your eyes on it. Oh, that is very interesting. And that's really what's needed. We need more lawsuits. We need to be holding them accountable. We need to be questioning them. We don't even ask them why. We don't even ask them how. We don't even ask them prove it. We don't ask them anything. We just say, okay, we'll do it. We'll take your green climate inflation nonsense act, and we'll believe that carbon dioxide is bad, so we'll get rid of it all, so we'll kill ourselves, because that's what will happen. How stupid is that? Well, um, I, I just to close the loop on this, I started out by saying um, the aspect of Eric's story I wanted to comment on was the controlled information environment, but we are beginning to get a controlled information environment here in the United States. That was the point of my story. Yeah, and that's why I think this climate lie, along with all of the other lies, but this one is a really big one. We, They are having us destroy ourselves and we are accepting it. So this is a very bad thing. And that is a win for communism because it means that they have totally indoctrinated their believers. We just have to hope that there are enough of us that see, wait a minute, this is not a good idea. And it's not a good idea that everybody has the same thing, does the same thing, and all of the rewards go to the government. It is not a good idea that the government tells us what to do and controls every aspect of production and distribution of all goods and services and all human activity, period. It is not a good thing for a government made up of people because we know that people can be cruel and communists can be extremely cruel. Uh, Chris, we are at the final minutes of the show. So if you and Eric would like to give a final, uh, that would be wonderful. I think I'd like to finish up uh, simply by giving my website and email address again. We have free mailing lists. We have free speakers. Uh, it's um, spiderandthefly.com is the website with hyphens between the words. Reach us at mail at spiderandthefly.com. And I'd like to reserve the last couple of minutes for Eric to tell us more about his project, his website, Stories of Communism. Eric, yeah. you're up. Yeah, so, so basically you can uh, find the website, storiesofcommunism.com, just all one big word. And um, there's lots more stories there. And, and I think the most important thing is that we start demanding to hear these stories, right? Maybe, um, you know, if, if people started to, maybe tell Hollywood that, uh, you know, we don't need the 532nd uh, Marvel superhero movie. Why don't you make one movie about Thomas Segovia? Um, you know, maybe things could change. Yes, you are so right. Our kids have no heroes. You can't have heroes when we only are focusing on animated things. That's not your hero. There isn't any hero that's going to come out of a book or on a screen that's going to save anybody. We have heroes and we should be drawing from them and drawing from their knowledge and incorporating their thoughts into what we do. That's the whole idea of knowing history. You learn what's good, you learn what's bad, and you take the good and incorporate it into your life. Unfortunately, the communists take what's bad. So folks, 
you have to be aware, you have to understand, you have to know who these people are. And that's what this show is all about. They don't care when somebody dies. They don't care when there's a tragedy. They don't care. The life is irrelevant to them. Remember what um, Eric said about the gulags, three weeks after that, who cares? You are irrelevant to them. So let's make ourselves relevant by asking questions. Make sure you vet your candidates. Make sure you pick good ones that will go to represent you and what you really want, which is freedom and liberty and the pursuit of happiness that we have rights to have. And those rights have been granted by our creator, not by our government. Folks, have a wonderful week. I will see you again next week. Thank you so much, Chris and Eric. It was a great show and learned a lot as always. This is the prism of America's education brought to you on the America Out Loud talk radio network with my wonderful sponsor, the Florida Citizens Alliance. Folks, have a wonderful week and make sure you pay attention to the people that you choose. I can't say this enough. We have to clean house. The ones that are there are bad. We got to get rid of them. It's our job. Thank you all. Have a wonderful week. But I'll always stand proud and free. I'm America, don't tread on.